Good morning. Welcome to the Oasis. We're glad you're here with us. We're glad you're joining us from your homes this morning, wherever you are. We're continuing our series on Sunday mornings in the Gospel of Luke, the story of Jesus, a story that will inspire passion and wonder and witness, as we saw the very first week of our series several weeks ago now. And this morning we're going to be in Luke chapter 5, the first 16 verses. And in the first 11 verses, Jesus is calling disciples. And so we're going to sort of lay that passage aside uh, for just a moment. And I actually want to begin with the latter part of the passage we're going to be looking at this morning, verses 12 through verse 16. Luke chapter 5, 12 through 16. We're going to be learning, again, hopefully more about Jesus today and what it means to be a follower of Jesus and what it means to be a disciple of Jesus today as well. But we begin in Luke chapter 5, verse 12, where we read that while he was in one of the towns, simply one of the towns around the Sea of Galilee, that's that's the geographical region that Jesus is in right now. You find that back in verse 1. Um, it's referred to there as the Lake of Gennesaret. That is simply another name for the Sea of Galilee. And while he was in one of these towns surrounding the Sea of Galilee, a man came to him who was covered with leprosy. And we don't know much about leprosy today, obviously, but in Bible times, it was a big deal. And if you had leprosy, you were ostracized from society. You were totally isolated. Nobody would come near you, and you weren't allowed to go near anybody because of the disease that you were carrying and because of not only the physical uncleanness of it, but in the context of the days in which they lived, the, the spiritual uncleanness, if you will, that that, that carried, sort of a stigma if you will. It was, it was more than just a physical disease. There, there was a stigma attached to being a leper, okay? In fact, we know even in Bible times that, that there were many who believed that, you know, if you suffered something like this, that, that you had done something terribly wrong and that, that, you know, you were being punished by God because you had this kind of a disease. And yet, Somewhere along the line, this man, this leper, has heard about Jesus. He's heard about him because he comes to Jesus, which means that whatever he's heard about Jesus, he understands one thing initially, and that is that Jesus will not cast him out, that Jesus will not refuse to come near him, that, that, that there will be access to Jesus, that, that there will be acceptance with, with Jesus. And so he comes to Jesus, and then the Bible tells us that when he sees Jesus, he bows down with his face to the ground, begging, Lord, if you are willing, you can make me clean. Now, there's a lot in there. First of all, the fact that he bows down with his face to the ground is not only an expression in a sense of coming to Jesus and approaching him in a worshipful manner, okay? But I think there's also a little bit of shame there. You know, leprosy was one of these things that, you know, totally destroyed the skin of the body. 
and it was very evident that you were suffering this disease, and, and it was something that would be shameful. And so even the fact that he was sort of hiding his face from Jesus as he comes to him and as he bows down to the ground, but what he says is key. First of all, he starts out with the word Lord. He is acknowledging that Jesus Christ is the supreme authority of the universe, that he is the master of the universe, that he is Adonai, Adonai. And he says, Lord, if you are willing, you can. You can make me clean. Notice there is no question in this man's mind about the Lord's capability. He totally believes that Jesus has the power to heal him. That is not the question. The only question in this man's mind is, is Jesus willing? That's where many of us struggle. For this reason, in God's will, because he is God and he knows all things, all things, nothing escapes the notice of God. Whatever God chooses to do, whatever his will is, is always, let me repeat that, is always what is best for us. Jesus will always choose what is best for us. Now, that may not be what's physically best, what's materially best, uh, you know, what's financially best, because God also always operates that the spiritual trumps the physical, that the eternal trumps the temporal. But make no mistake about it. He knew that Jesus could heal him. The only question was, does Jesus believe at this point that this is the best choice for this man? I want to stop here for a moment because there may be some of you who are watching today and some of you who are here in the auditorium today and Jesus is doing something that you're questioning, obviously, uh, and, or he's not doing something or moving that, that maybe you think in a way that he should, and you're struggling right now. You have to hear from me today, just simply as God's spokesperson here, that whatever he is choosing at this moment for you, whether it is to give or to hold back, whatever, it is for your best. I know that's not easy at times. But that's where our faith has to kick in and we have to trust that whatever he chooses for us, whatever his will is, whatever his choice is, it will always be for our eternal and spiritual best above all other considerations. Now in this case, though, I want you to notice what Jesus does before he even says anything. And this is huge. I don't want you to miss this. The very next verse, verse 13, tells us that Jesus reaches out his hand and touches this man. If we could only appreciate what Jesus is doing here and what's happening in this moment. Here is a man who maybe hasn't had any physical touch for years. No one's touched him. He's touched no one. No one's hugged him. 
No one has given him any kind of bodily and physical affection. He's been on his own for who knows how long. And here's the Lord of glory that before he does anything else, he reaches out his hand and he touches him. Folks, that's huge. That, that is showing us how loving, how caring, how compassionate our Lord Jesus is. That, that he's not here just to minister to us in, in a spiritual way, but, but he understands the physical wants and desires and needs of us as human beings. And before he speaks a word, he touches this man. And I'm sure that meant more to that man than anything that Jesus could have done at that point before he even says anything. You, the Lord, you're willing to touch me, the untouchable, the one that no one else wants to touch, the one who's been ostracized and isolated from society, you are going to touch me? Yeah, that's Jesus. Maybe you're here today watching and you feel all alone and isolated and ostracized. Jesus wants to touch you today. Jesus wants to take you up in his arms and let you know he loves you, he cares about you, he has compassion for you. You are of great value and worth to him, no matter who you are. Think of this leper, someone that no one in that society would have cared about, but Jesus did. Maybe that's you today, and you need to know how much Jesus cares about you. But then Jesus says this. He says, I am willing. Be clean. And the Bible says immediately the leprosy left him. Jesus has the power to heal and to make us whole. The question is never about his power or capability or ability. Jesus is able. I hope you believe that today. He is able. The only question is, is that what's best? And he will always choose in his will what is best for each of us. Do we trust his choice? Do we trust his will? And do we believe that he is able? Then Jesus gives him some instructions. After he heals this man, he tells him, look, don't go out and spread this around. First, do what the Old Testament tells you to do in this situation. There were certain prescriptions, if you will, in the Old Testament law for how you dealt with something like this. And the reason Jesus is telling him to follow this as Moses commanded, if you see it there in the verses, in verses 14 and 15, is because, first of all, Jesus came to fulfill the law, and that's what he's telling this man to do. Follow the word of God here. And second, it was the way for this man then to re-enter society. He would be accepted back into society if he followed the instructions of Jesus. But Jesus goes on to say also in verses 14 and 15 that you need to go to the priest and when they see that you've been healed, it will be a testimony to them. 
You will be a witness. You will be a living, breathing evidence of my power. Because when they begin to question you about how were you healed and who healed you, you can tell them, Jesus of Nazareth. And therefore, the spiritual leaders of Israel will have notice given to them that this man, Jesus, is no ordinary man. He is the God-man who's come from heaven, and he is not just a man. He is the Son of Man. He is the Son of God. He is the Savior of the world. That's who Jesus is. Now, again, what we see then before we move on is after this ministry and other ministry that Jesus does, I want you again to note this because Luke points this out over and over again as an example to us, verse 16. It says, yet Jesus himself frequently withdrew to the wilderness and prayed. We see the pattern of Jesus in his ministry. He was willing to pour himself out, ministering to others, meeting people's needs, but he balanced that by getting alone away from the crowds at times, and to get alone with his father and to talk with his father in prayer. You and I, in order to have an effective and vibrant public ministry and life, we need to do the same thing. We need to make sure that we, at times, after ministering, that we get alone and get away from the crowd and that we spend some time alone, and especially alone with God, just as Jesus did. Whether it's in worship, time in his word, time in prayer, as Jesus did, talking to the Father, but that we make sure that we go out, but then we also come back and withdraw a little bit so that we get re-energized and renewed and recharged to then go back into the lives of others that God wants us to minister to. And you see this throughout the Gospel of Luke. Then we come to chapter 5, verse 1. This passage where Jesus now is calling disciples. Now let's talk about that for a minute. What is a disciple? A disciple is a fully devoted, fully dependent follower of Jesus Christ. And we maybe can get the idea of fully devoted, but let's talk about fully dependent for a minute because it is, it is counter to everything that you and I come in, across with in the world as far as how things normally go. If you or you're being mentored or trained by someone, or you're doing the mentoring or the training. The goal always is, I want to lead them to where they can be autonomous, independent. I don't want them to have to always rely and depend on them. And that's part of the normal training, if you will, mentoring process with anything they can then start to do it on their own. I mean, that's the whole thing of even parenting properly, right? But in the spiritual world, in the kingdom of God, when following Jesus Christ, it is absolutely the opposite. That the more we follow Jesus, the more dependent 
the more reliant we will become upon him. Not the less reliant or dependent, but the more. And that's what a disciple is. A fully devoted, fully dependent follower of Jesus Christ. A couple other things. Not every Christian is a disciple, obviously. There will be many Christians who end up in heaven, but not the same number of disciples. There's a difference, a distinction in the Bible between a Christian and a disciple. So then we have to say, hmm, so when Jesus in his great commission said to the church, to his followers, go and make disciples, then in God's mind and in God's economy, it's not enough just to bring people to faith in Jesus Christ. God's goal is that we make disciples, not just that we make converts. And then we have to say this. Only disciples can make disciples. Oh, my friends, absorb that. That's why, can I tell you, at the Oasis, we do ministry the way we do it because you can't make something if you're not something to begin with. And the only way we as Christians can make other disciples is to have become a disciple ourselves. Then we can reproduce ourselves in others. A Christian cannot make a disciple, but a disciple can make a disciple. You see. So all disciples are Christians, but not all Christians are disciples. One other thing before we move through the passage. It's very significant that the people that Jesus calls to be his initial disciples are not the religious leaders. They're not the people who went to, you know, certain schools or, as we would say today, certain seminaries who had certain degrees, you know, by their names. Now, if you know me, I'm not anti-education or biblical education at all, but what we see through Jesus is this. The number one thing that will shape our life as Christians is walking with Jesus every day as a disciple. Not what school or seminary or education or all of that we had. And that's why Jesus takes these men who were very raw. We need to learn from that. Because part of being a disciple too, in fact, the very name disciple means learner. One who is willing to be teachable. Well, that means then one who's humble, who feels like I can be taught, right? Many of the religious leaders in Jesus' day thought they had it all figured out. They, they had no room in their life to learn something else. They were good. They had all the, you know, degrees, and they had all the accolades, and they had the positions within society they didn't need somebody like Jesus coming along trying to teach him anything because they couldn't learn anything from Jesus. 
He was simply a carpenter's son from Nazareth. You and I need to learn from that. You see, Jesus didn't have to, in a sense, deprogram these fishermen and these other people that he called because there wasn't anything there to deprogram at that point. They were just raw. And Jesus said, if you follow me, I will shape your life and you will become all that I've created you to be. All that potential within you will begin to surface. I will stand before you any day of the week and tell you that if I am any kind of benefit or blessing to any of you at any time, as your pastor, as a friend, or whatever, it is only due to me allowing Jesus to shape my life over the last 50-plus years. It has very little to do with my education and where I went to seminary and the books that I read and all of that. I'm not saying they weren't of any benefit, but my walk with Jesus every day has been the ultimate way my life has been shaped. And I say that because that will be true of you as well, because that's what discipleship is. It's walking with Jesus every day. It's following Jesus every day. And that's what he's getting ready to do, to call his first disciples. So let's look at the setting. Verse 1 tells us that Jesus was standing by the lake of Gennesaret. Again, another name for the Sea of Galilee. And notice it says the crowds were pressing around him to hear the word of God. Wow. What a hunger for the word of God at this point. Oh, that we would have such a hunger for the word of God today. That our churches would be filled with people pressing in to hear the word of God. That our churches would be a place where people could hear the word of God because Jesus was always teaching the word of God during his earthly ministry. And the people were hungry and thirsty to hear the word of God. They couldn't wait to hear what words came out of the mouth of Jesus. In that setting, it says in verse 2 that Jesus saw two boats by the lake and that the fishermen were not in the boats at this time because they had exited the boats to wash their nets. And Jesus stepped into one of the boats, it says, verse 3, which was Simon's, and asked him to just push that boat out just a little ways from the shore. And then Jesus sat down and he began to teach the crowds from the boat. Picture it. There's this massive group of people on the shore. And Jesus is looking around going, you know what? That'll do. Jesus always used what was at his disposal. He never was like, oh, I'm at a loss. I got nothing. He, he was very creative in the way he lived his life and did ministry. I mean, think about it. Even when he fed those thousands of people, he just took what was there, five loaves and two fish, that's what he used. I say that to give you encouragement that, that you can have and, and use 
right there what you've got because God will multiply it and God will use it because God just uses what we have and what he has at the moment to minister. And since Jesus was, was creating a, an amphitheater there that, that would have actually been very good sound-wise uh, as he taught from the water against the background of the shore. But then it says in verse 4 that after Jesus finished speaking, he turns to Simon. By the way, it was very strategic and intentional that Jesus chose Simon's boat to be the one to go in of the two. Jesus does nothing by accident, right? And he turns to Simon and he says, Simon, put out into the deep water and lower your nets for a catch. God is always calling us to go out under his direction. And notice that this is a command. This isn't a suggestion. He doesn't say to Peter, now, Peter, if you feel like it, you know, or if you think it's a good idea, he says, put out into the deep water. And then notice, though, he attaches a promise to the command. He doesn't say, put out into the deep water and you may catch something. No, he doesn't say that, does he? Because he's the Lord. He says, put out into the deep water for a catch. Jesus is basically saying, Peter, if you listen to me, you're going to catch something. I promise you. And my word is true. Because I'm faithful, as we've been reminded of and sung about this morning. Now, notice Peter's reaction, and I can't really blame him. I think you and I would all be here because, honestly, he actually lands in an amazing place. And it's one of the reasons why Jesus sees something in Peter already and why Peter's going to end up one day being the leader of this group of disciples. But Peter looks at Jesus. Now, remember, Jesus is not a fisherman. Jesus is a carpenter and the son of a carpenter. That's how they're viewing him, right? That's how they know him. Yes, he's a rabbi. In fact, Peter addresses him that way. The, the term master that he uses there for Jesus is simply another way of saying rabbi, teacher, or the, our leader. And at this point, Jesus had these guys surrounding him, and, and he was sort of the recognized leader but, oh, Peter was not viewing him in all that he was yet. He will in just a moment. He says, Master, we have worked hard all night and caught nothing. I mean, you can imagine, I'm sure he probably was thinking even more as he's going, uh, I'm the professional fisherman, you're not, and you're telling me how to fish? And anybody that knows anything about fishing, Jesus, knows that the fish come up at night when it's cooler to the surface, and now it's the heat of the day, and they have dropped down to the bottom of the lake. Why are you telling me to do this? But here's the key. Peter says, and I, I want you to note this phrase. This is the first of three phrases that I want to emphasize in this passage. Peter says, but at your word, I will lower the nets. Becoming a disciple is having a growing yieldedness, surrender, and submission to the direction and voice and leading of God. 
Jesus, this doesn't make any sense to me. This seems really strange. This is not the way any of us would choose to do it. But at your word, I'll do it. I'll yield. It is so important that if we want to be disciples of Jesus Christ, that's where Jesus wants us to get to. There's going to be times in our life that he's going to direct us or lead us or tell us to do something, and it makes absolutely no sense at all. In fact, it might be just the opposite of what we would choose, just like Peter. Jesus, you go fishing at night on the Sea of Galilee, not during the heat of the day. But at your word, I'll do it. I'll do it. Are we there? Only we know if we're there or not. And if not, maybe it's then, okay, Lord, help me to get there. Help me to be that person that when I hear your voice, when you're leading me, when you're directing me to do something, even something that's counterintuitive that doesn't make any sense to me or, or that just seems so strange to me, God, if you're saying it, I'll do it. That's growing into discipleship. But at your word, I will lower the nets. And then we see what happens in verse 6. When they had done this, they caught so many fish that their nets began to tear apart. And they hollered over to their partners in the other boat and said, help us. So they came over and they started to fill both boats with the catch of fish. And the Bible tells us in verse 7 that it was so many fish that the boats began to sink. And then notice Peter's response. When Peter saw it, this huge catch of fish, maybe the greatest catch of fish he's ever had in his life, what does he do? Next key phrase. He fell down at Jesus' knees. Note that. Note that. He fell down at Jesus' knees. Why is that significant? Why is that a sign of being a, a growing into disciple for Jesus? Because here's the fisherman who you would think that if anything captivated him, if anything was interesting to him, if, if he would have been focused on anything, it would have been the huge catch of fish. Again, maybe the greatest catch of fish this man has ever seen in his life, and that's not what captivated him. What captivated him was the one who produced that catch of fish. He was captivated by Christ. He was enamored with Jesus. He could care less about the fish. It was Jesus that he fell down in front of. And then he says this. He says, go away from me, Lord. Earlier on, he was just a master. He was just the teacher, just the leader, just the rabbi. Now, Peter has grown in, in a quantum leap of, of understanding and seeing Jesus in a whole new light. Talk about opening my eyes to see as we sung about this morning. The greatness of our God as we sung about this morning. Peter is like, oh my goodness, I'm in the presence of God. Because he says, go away from me, Lord. I'm a sinful man.
not only do we need to have a growing yieldedness and submission and surrender to the voice of God in our life, we need to have a growing awareness and appreciation for who God is and who we are before him. And that's what was happening in Peter. He was realizing, oh my goodness, this just isn't a man. This is God that I'm in the presence of. This is the Lord. And I'm sinful in his presence. Well, there was nothing. Jesus never said anything about sinfulness or anything like that. But that's what happens. When you and I begin to follow closely the Lord, that's just going to be a natural result. We're going to see ourselves in a true light, and we're going to see God in a true light. And then we're going to begin to appreciate not only who he is and what we are, but what we can have and what we do have through him that is so undeserved, that we are so unworthy of. And that's where Peter is beginning to get to. That's where God wants to get all of us to as his disciples. Because so often, especially in this world today, it's all about what God owes me and what I'm owed and what are my rights and I deserve this. I mean, you hear this over and over again, that drumbeat of I deserve this and it's my right and, and God owes me or somebody owes me. And when you and I come into the presence of God and truly are aware and appreciate of who he is and who we are before him, we begin then to have a growing awareness and appreciation of all that we have in and through him, and none of it is deserved. None of it. And then that fuels our praise and our worship and our thanksgiving and our gratitude because we realize that so much of what we have, because we're always complaining about what we don't have and, and griping about what we don't have, and we stop and forget about counting our blessings with all the things as Christians that we do have already in and through him, things that we would never have apart from him. Lord, go away from me, for I'm a sinful man. For then, verse 9 says, for Peter and all who were with him were astonished. There's that word again. Marveling, wondering, stunned, stupefied at the catch of fish that they had taken in. Along with James and John, Zebedee's sons, who were his business partners, it says in verse 10. And then Jesus says these very important words to Peter. Words that you and I need to be reminded of, too. He looks at Peter who wants Jesus to get away from him because he's such a sinner. And Jesus says, do not be afraid to be in my presence. You may think that I want nothing to do with you. Just the opposite. I want everything to do with you. I want to have a close relationship, an intimate relationship with you. And not only do I want something to do with you, I want to use you. I want you to partner with me in the growing and building of my kingdom on this earth, Peter. That's what I want. So he says, from now on, you'll be catching men. From now on, he's saying, Peter, things are going to change. From now on, you'll be partnering with me as we gather people for the kingdom. Can you imagine? Peter realizes whose presence he's in, and Peter's like, I'm, I'm, I'm such a sinner, and you are so perfect, and you are so holy, 
And how would you want anything to do with me? And here's the perfect God saying, I want everything to do with you. You don't have to be afraid. There is no fear in love. Perfect love casts out fear. And Jesus at that moment is saying to Peter, more than just don't be afraid, he's saying, I love you, Peter, and you don't need to ever be afraid of me or be afraid to be close to me or be in my presence because that's the whole reason I came to earth to begin with. And I don't just want to be close to you. Again, I want to use you. I want you to partner with me. I want us to be friends. I want us to be close. I can't imagine what was going through Peter's mind and heart any more than sometimes when I consider who I am before God and that God allows me the kind of life that he does. Same thing. Very humbling. Very humbling. But then we get to verse 11. And we see the last phrase that I want you to take note of today. Beyond just the fact that he says, but at your word I will lower your nets, and he fell down at Jesus' feet. Notice verse 11. It says, when they brought the boat to shore, here's the phrase, they left everything and followed him. They laid everything aside and they followed him. Why? Because when you and I truly encounter Jesus, Jesus changes the priorities of our life. Jesus now becomes the primary pursuit. Jesus now becomes the primary passion of their life and hopefully of ours as well. Before this moment in their life, Fishing and the fishing business and making money and all of that, that was their priority. Now, that's no longer the priority. Now the priority of their life is following Jesus. That's the priority. And that doesn't mean that Jesus wants you to change jobs or to give up your job or your occupation because it doesn't matter what our jobs or occupation or what our pursuit is, you know, in this world as far as to make money and earn a living and all of that. Because we still can primarily be a follower of Jesus Christ while we're doing it. While we're doing it. As long as that thing, whatever it is, is not the priority, but following Jesus is the priority, that's being a disciple. And that's what was happening here. It wasn't that they never fished again. They did. But fishing and the fishing business and making money off the fish, that, that wasn't it. I mean, think about this. Can, can you imagine when you, when you think about, you know, the, the peddling of what we call the health and wealth gospel today and how God just wants us all to be, you know, if that was true, here would have been a other scenario at the same time. Jesus gives them this great catch of fish and then goes to him and says, now guys, let's think about this. Let me become your business partner. I'll just, I'll just go out on the lake with you every day and we'll just haul in all this fish and we'll be the biggest fishing business in Galilee. We'll start making t-shirts and coffee cups and, and, and we'll, have, we'll have the biggest fishing business that anybody ever saw and we'll be the most you know, fizz, uh, successful fishing business ever. And you guys will be the richest guys on the planet because nobody will be able to compete with you because nobody has Jesus in their boat producing all this fish every day. No, that's not at all what was going on here. 
Jesus was trying to get them to see that following him was going to be the greatest pursuit of their life. Not having the biggest fishing business. And God wants us to get there as well. Because Jesus came to call disciples. And he's calling disciples right here, right now, today. Whether in our auditorium or in our homes today, God is saying, will you be my disciple? Will you follow me? Will you make me your number one pursuit? Will I be the center of your lives from this day forward? Only you and I can answer that question. Only you and I know our heart's desires at this point. But that's what Jesus is offering us today. The greatest, best thing we could ever be a part of is to be a devoted, fully dependent follower of Jesus Christ. I'm going to ask Nicole and our worship team to come. I'm going to ask you to stand with me, and let's close in prayer this morning. Father, I pray today that this story that really took place several thousand years ago on the shores of Galilee would come alive for each of us today. That, God, we would put ourselves right there in that scene today with Jesus. That for a few minutes, we could feel what Peter was feeling. We could feel what that leper was feeling. That we could put ourselves in that scene and be moved, Lord, by it. I pray, God, that all of us would desire to be not just a convert, not just a Christian, not just someone who's trusted the Lord as our Savior, but one who wants to be a fully devoted, fully dependent follower of Jesus Christ, a disciple, a disciple. Because only disciples can make disciples, and that's what you've called us to do. So God, would you take our lives today as we offer them to you, knowing, Lord, that when we give you our life and place our life into your hands, Lord, there's no better hands for our lives to be in. These things we pray in Jesus' name, amen.